0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jenny Lee from the University of Arizona. Today, we have Dr. William Hedberg with us to talk about his new book, The Japanese Discovery of Chinese Fiction, The Water Margin and the Making of a National Canon, published by Columbia University Press last year. Um, Will is currently an assistant professor in the at the uh, Arizona State University. In this book, he discusses the ways that Japanese readers from the 18th to 20th centuries interpreted the classic Chinese novel written in the 14th century, The Water Margins, or in Chinese, shui hu Zhuan, in Japanese, 水壺点。he further examines the role of this Chinese work in the formation of the so-called national literature in Japan, as well as its impact left behind. Welcome, Will. Thank you so much for joining us in the New Books in Japanese Studies today.
2: No, thank you very much. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Um, I'd like to begin this interview by talking about you first, um, I am very interested in what brings you to Japanese studies, to uh, to grad school, to decide on um, st- starting this career in academia. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us something about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um- so, I kind of came to Japanese studies via a little bit of a circuitous route. Um, I was initially a Chinese literature major. Um, I grew up, you know, very close by Arizona, actually in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, for a variety of reasons, I had always very much wanted to study Chinese and Japanese. Uh, there wasn't really a way to do that in New Mexico in the 90s. Uh, so, I had to wait till I went to the University of Kansas. Uh, to begin studying Chinese, I, st- I got very lucky in that respect. I studied with Keith McMahon, uh, Deborah Peterson, John Dardis, who unfortunately just passed away very recently. Um, did my undergraduate in Chinese literature. I was I was very interested in the Water Margin. Uh, I remember reading the Water Margin a cafe in Lawrence, Kansas, in the summer of 2003. Uh, I wrote an undergraduate thesis on the sequels to the Water Margin, and my plan was to go to graduate school in late imperial Chinese fiction and continue along those lines. Um, In the process, once I started graduate school at Harvard, uh, I got very interested in sort of the Japanese afterlives of a lot of the Chinese works I was reading, especially uh, The Water Margin. And so I sort of switched focus in the middle of my graduate career and ended up writing a dissertation about uh, sort of the Jap- Japanese interest in Chinese vernacular fiction uh, very broadly, and especially the ways in which uh, the incorporation, importation of various novels affected Japanese ideas about literature, language, literary canons. So um, you know, I've always kind of had one foot in both the Japanese literature and Chinese literature camps, as much as I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I like to sort of connect myself with both of those uh, as much as I can. So again, uh, you know, came to Japanese studies very, very via a little bit of a circuitous route.
1: That's very interesting. I imagine it must have been a, uh, um, it must have been very different in the in two disciplines. You know, they they use different languages, and I imagine you would have to study classical Japanese and Jap- uh, classical Chinese both.
2: That's right. Yeah. So I had uh, taken, I had done my Chinese at the University of Kansas, uh, including classical Chinese. And then began began actually began Japanese in graduate school. Uh, I got very lucky in that respect too. Again, I was I went in. Uh, my primary advisor was Vilt Inema in Chinese literature, and uh, David Wong in modern Chinese literature. The second year, I got to Harvard. Karen Thornberg uh, joined the faculty. And very, very generously, uh, kind of sight unseen, took me as a student. And uh, it was really through her, you know, she met with me, I think, once a week for an entire year, uh, which, which sort of allowed me to reinvent myself as a comparatist. And also, I took a classical Japanese with Professor Edmund Cranston, who also... I wasn't able to attend his class during the usual sessions, so I equally generously agreed to meet with me on these one-on-one sessions every Monday. My third year in graduate school, which is which is really kind of one of my 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 uh, you know most treasured memories of that period, learning to read classical Japanese in these very kind of individual, unique circumstances with you know a tremendously respected and uh, talented scholar. So um, you know my career. In a lot of ways, it's kind of very strange, but it, it was it was through encountering these very kind of unique, generous individuals at these uh, crucial moments that I was able to kind of keep my foot in both.
1: That's really great that that um, these important mentors were able to um, um, lead you through down this path. Um, and what about the water margin? I remember um, because I I grew up in China. Um, I remember when I was very little reading a comic book of the water margin that contained very violent contents, which now that I think about it, they shouldn't have um, showed those kind of Stuff to kids. <laughs>
2: there's a long tradition of that, though. There, I was when I was digging up these uh, things in the National Diet Library. There was a book of children's literature from the Meiji period uh, that included a very watered down version of the Water Margin. So uh, there, there's a long tradition of you know giving inappropriate literature to children. It's, it's a <laughs> oh wow <very> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah I because I remember um, seeing I remember scenes where um, people got beheaded mm-hmm. or. Um, fights between groups of people. So, how did you get um, into the water margin in specific?
2: That's a great question. I don't know if I have a very good answer for it. Again, I, I, it's one of those works that just very kind of viscerally grabbed me from the first moment I encountered. And again, I, I have this almost kind of you know sensory kind of Proustian memory, of reading this work in a cafe in Lawrence, Kansas, in the summer of two thousand three. Um, it really just sort of grabbed me. For one, I mean, it was very different from anything I'd ever read. Um, you know, I, I had not traveled very much before going to college. I shamefully had never really studied a foreign language prior to studying Chinese in college. Um, it was very different from anything I'd ever encountered, you know, from the structure, you know, rather than having this clear beginning, middle end. It's got this, you know, the simulated storyteller, this very kind of cyclical structure that intrigued me. I didn't really know what to do with that. Um you know, the characters themselves, when I started the project on Japanese receptions of the novel, you know, one thing that kept coming up and up again was this fascination with character, right, which is something that you see in Chinese commentaries to the novel. This is something that, you know, for the last 400 years, people have been, you know, commenting on. It's just this, these incredible three-dimensional, very unique characters, right? Jin Shengtan says, when Shi Nayan was creating this work, he created this 108 distinct personalities, Um and I think I had sort of a similar experience encountering for the, for the first time, you know, characters like Wu Sung, Li Kui, Sung Jiang. Um, there was just something very, you know, very seductive and captivating about these characters. And, um, you know, I mentioned this in the introduction of my book, as much as I've tried to say kind of objective and scientific um, you know, this project was a real labor of love, and I felt a lot of sympathy for these, you know, Meiji even Edo period readers who, you know, just became these kind of giddy fans when they were talking about this novel. There's, there was just something, you know, really electrifying that captivated me from the beginning. Um, but I have trouble articulating what that was. But you know, for those of us who are studying literature professionally, I, I think it's like a sentiment that we, you know a lot of us can can uh, you know really sympathize with.
1: Yes, thank you. Yeah, I um, definitely agree. I've um, uh, when I was working on my MA thesis on Chinese novelists, well, Chinese playwrights in Japan, um, I read these these uh, from here and there. You would see uh, these Japanese authors is expressing their admiration for Chinese authors and the way the Chinese novelists um, did their uh, worked on their novels. So. Cool. So let's talk about your book then, um, and we should probably start from the beginning of the beginning. Um, so you just mentioned how how you found it was um, peculiar that the Japanese readers saw the water margin in a perhaps a different way than we would imagine them to. But um, how do you start this project? How do you? How did you? Um, decide on writing this for a dissertation project and mm. then turning into a book project
2: yeah that's a that's a that's a wonderful question too I think there's probably a cautionary tale in in the story of how I came to write this book um, in some ways you know I think my book kind of rhymes with the dissertation I published in uh, what, 20, 2012 was when I finished my dissertation Um there's some similarities between the book and the dissertation in terms of topic or focus, um, but I essentially kind of started over. Uh, I, I finished my dissertation in 2012. I moved to North Carolina, where I taught at a very small university for a few years. Um, I had this incredibly huge teaching load. I think my first year I taught nine courses, just just kind of all over the place. Um, so I was, in some ways. Kind of forced to put research on hold for about a year or so, just just because it was my first time teaching. I was teaching, you know, this 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 ungodly huge number of courses. Um, so I put my dissertation to the side for about a year, and when I picked it up again, I think the following summer, I just had this epiphany that I really should have written about the water margin. My my dissertation was much more broadly about. Japanese interest in Chinese vernacular fiction. So really the thrust of it was uh, discussions of Japanese interest in spoken Chinese language, and then also this handful of compositions by Japanese authors uh, in vernacular Chinese. So that that, that was the dissertation. Um, when I picked it up after about a year or so of not looking at it, I really realized that You know, I had wanted to write about the water margin. Uh, There wasn't that much about the water margin, the body, the dissertation itself. But it just seemed like every other footnote brought up the water margin. And I just, you know, I I just it just seemed to me to be screaming. You know, you really should have written about the water margin. You know, this is clearly what like where your passion is. Um, So, you know, this would have been about 2014 or so. I completely switched the focus of the research project and decided that, you know, the water margin would make an excellent focal point for, you know, discussing the same issues I was interested. I was still interested in, you know, the Japanese interest in Chinese spoken language, uh, Japanese interest in Chinese material culture, you know, pre-modern fiction commentary, literary canon. Um, But it just struck me that it would be so much kind of more streamlined to look at these issues through the lens of this particular Chinese novel, which again, you know, my long-standing fascination notwithstanding, I really didn't talk about that much in the dissertation. So, so you know, again, kind of a cautionary tale. You know, if you have the luxury of kind of putting your dissertation aside for a little bit after you graduate, you know, it's something I would recommend uh, to any any PhD students who are listening. If, if you have that luxury, uh, you often come back. And realize there was something else that you really wanted to write about or perhaps like a new way of, you know, focusing your research that didn't occur to you at the time.
1: That's really interesting. I'll definitely keep that part in mind. (laughs) I haven't even really uh, started writing my dissertation yet, but... uh I will definitely put try put it away for well, a while. It's
2: just always interesting to see what occurs to you. Just kind of there's this like fermentation that goes on when when you when you put something aside for a little while. So it, yeah. it worked. It worked for me, I think, but <laughs> maybe not. That's,
1: that, that's great. I'm glad it worked out. So um, in the beginning of our interview, I I super briefly um, summarized your book, but could you tell us more about um, what you are trying to say in this book and how are the chapters arranged
2: uh-huh, absolutely no that was a wonderful summary I don't, I don't know if I have that much to add to that really that was perfect um, just as you said broadly speaking it's a study of the Japanese reception of the water margin uh, between the early 18th and the early 20th century there, there it goes a little there's a little bit about you know um, uh, 17th century Japan as well, but for the most part, really starts around the year 1700. Uh, comes up to you know the end of the Meiji period. Um, the first half is primarily focused on Edo period material. Uh, the first chapter deals probably the most overlap with my dissertation. You know, the, the, there are parts in there that was were you know directly related, taken from my dissertation. Um, looking at the early reception of the water margin against the backdrop of broader Japanese interest in Chinese spoken language and Chinese material culture, Atowagaku, gaku, this period, you know, figures like Ogyu Sorai, uh, Ito Jinsai to a lesser degree, uh, Okajima Kanzan, the very well-known Nagasaki translator, this moment where there's this tremendously widespread uh, importation of Chinese texts into Japan, that then leads to this meditation on what these differences in language indicate. So chapter one looks at the reception of the water margin against the backdrop of this broader interest in contemporary Chinese culture. Uh, chapter two takes kind of a more literary focus, um, this is, in some ways, going back to my original love uh, when I was in you know, early graduate school. Uh, as an undergraduate, I was very interested in uh, Ping Dian commentary, traditional Chinese fiction commentary by people like Jin Shang Tan, Zhang po So chapter two largely looks at Japanese commentaries to Chinese commentaries of, you know, works of Chinese fiction, which, which, which sounds, you know, unbelievably esoteric and dull. Uh, but there's actually, you know, it's, it's really fascinating you know, the, looking at sort of these discussions over narrative between uh, first Chinese commentators like Jin Shang and then later Japanese commentators who are, you know, very much interested in what Chinese critics are saying about Chinese fiction but very often advance their own interpretations, their own understandings of the significance of this really morally problematic novel. So, broadly speaking, chapter two is about Japanese interest in narratology, uh, Japanese interest in sort of the moral dimensions or the moral implications of again what is a really problematic Chinese text, right? I think. One reason why the water merchant is so uniquely popular in Edo period Japan is the fact that it's a really troubling, subversive work. And this is something, you know, the Chinese commentators speak at a great length, but Japanese critics especially are very uneasy about these are the moral ramifications, the implications of this very seductive fun to read text and that tension between uh you know, the need to make some kind of moral pronouncement versus the fact that you know it's, it's just a fun novel to read lead to some really interesting interpretations and uh, you know uh, professor Glenn Wally at the University of Oregon has written a magnificent book on Kyokote Bakken who you know exemplified this 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 sort of tension between a very seductive and a very morally problematic narrative so uh, chapter 2 introduces some new figures looks at sort of the narratological analysis of the water margin in the 18th and 19th Centuries. Uh, chapters three and four switch gears a little bit. You know, I, I entered graduate school, a scholar of late imperial Chinese literature, and you know, fifteen years later, I surprised myself by writing a book that's largely about Meiji period Japan. This was going to be a book about Edo, but chapters three and four look at the Meiji period reception of Shuihuan which uh, you know, this is a work that. Was tremendously important, tremendously popular during the Meiji period. There are new translations, new editions, new adaptations, new parodies. Everyone from you know Mori Ogai to Mori Takayan, everyone, uh, you know, is I'm um, sorry, Mori Kainan, is absolutely fascinated by this work. And chapters three and four are focused on Meiji period, uh, you know, interest in this novel. Chapter three looks at it from the standpoint of the development of Chinese literary studies in Meiji Taisho and early. Showa-era Japan, uh, Shina Bungaku, or, or you know, the, the academic study of Chinese literature. Chapter four looks at things almost from a more kind of uh, quasi-ethnographic stance. You know, Readers and writers who are obsessed with this novel, The Water Margin, who discuss it with respect to their experiences of China, uh, you know, c- kind of contextualizing this within this very large body of travel literature by Japanese authors who, who worked or traveled. Uh, in Republican China in some in some in some uh, capacity
1: that's fascinating. Um, I noticed you mentioned moral implications a lot mm-hmm. uh, when you were talking about the Japanese reception of Chinese novels. Could you uh, perhaps uh, speak more to why moral implication was such an important thing in for the Japanese readers
2: mm-hmm. at that time yeah it's it's a, in some ways, I've, you know, it'll always be a little bit speculative, but I mean, one of the motivating issues of the study is why this particular novel, right? Why? Because I really do think it's true, you know, even though I'm by, by no means, you know, balanced and objective by this point, but I think it really is demonstrably true that the water margin enjoys this unique prestige, unique focus in early modern Japanese society. Um, and again there're probably a few different reasons for that but one of my you know working hypotheses is that it's precisely because it is such a you know morally troubling or morally problematic work that it invites you know such a Degree of passionate discussion and debate, and again, you know the Chinese commentaries that were always import, imported along with the novel itself. And this is uh, something very important to the study of late imperial Chinese fiction. You know these texts are not published in a vacuum; they're published with these extensive critical commentaries that are written in the margins and other places. Um, you know, very often do kind of focus on the moral ramifications of this novel. And this is, you know, again, provided a an entry point for Japanese commentators to advance their own theories on why or how this novel should be read. I mean, all of them argue ultimately that it should be read. There are a handful of Japanese commentators who said, you know, stay away from this novel. You know, it's 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 not worth reading. But for the most part, you know, they very enthusiastically recognize this as a work of great literature. So the issue becomes finding a way to justify the consumption, this is the consumption of this very morally problematic text. So, you know, at one end of the extreme you have somebody like Kyoko Bakken who essentially rewrites this novel from scratch, right? Hakenden in some ways is a, you know, a morally acceptable retelling of the water margin. Um, but there are a lot of other authors too, who in various ways attempt to create some kind of justification or some kind of rationale for reading this work, whether it's, you know, critical commentary, like the kind you see with figures like Jin Shang Um, there's a, you know, fairly well-known 18th century literatus Seta Tanso, who writes this extensive commentary, not only to the novel, but to Jin Shang Tan's commentary to the novel. So we see this, you know, this, uh, this very interesting, um, you know, cross-cultural, cross-temporal discussion of the water margin, um, in this, in this, in this commentary. And then also things like all of these different rewritings, right? Uh, You know, uh, uh, Santo Kyoden's very famous Chushin Suikoden, where, like Bakian, but in a kind of more playful way, he attempts to sort of clean up this novel by superimposing the much, you know, the, the, the well-known narrative of the 47 you know, faithful uh, Ronan of Akko. Um, again, there's this, this attempt at sort of uh, tidying up or cleaning up or making morally acceptable this, this, this really complex text. But I really do think it's that, you know, moral complexity or moral dubiousness that in some ways contributes to the popularity of this novel during that time.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: That's super interesting. I find it. Um, um, perhaps the uh, that that's why the editor in uh, in China for those kids' comics found moral justification for the violent contents.
2: You can do it. You know, it, it's and to me this was the kind of like a light motif. Light motif throughout the book is looking at all these different ways by which you can justify this work. You know, when you get into the Meiji. The, the you know the water margin is popular like never before. It, you know just in terms of sheer material, new translations, new editions of this. You know our material from the Meiji, in some ways, kind of dwarfs what we have from the Edo period, and you see new ways of justifying this. You know one of the most kind of elegant ways of justifying the morally problematic dimensions of this novel is to say that this is realism, right? You know the the, the you know the, with these new you know, ideas about, you know, realism, mimetic description, uh, you know, kind of uh, moral interiority, you find a lot of, you know, you find a lot of very prominent novelists and writers making the argument that the water margin is the first example of naturalism or realism. Uh, Yamaji Aizan has this wonderful essay where he talks about the water margin as a model for contemporary Japanese novelists, precisely because it deals with all these morally problematic circumstances, you know, as opposed to Bakken, where good and evil are fairly clear cut. This novel really just revels or wallows in these morally problematic things. So, for him, that was a signpost of early realism or early naturalism. And it's interesting to see him encouraging contemporary Japanese writers to use this as, as, as some sort of model for emulation. So, you know, the justification changes, but in many ways, uh, you know, the task remains the same, justifying this really complicated, <laughs> uh, bloody, bloody novel.
1: <laughs> yes. And... um uh, that, that actually connects to the next question I've prepared for you. So, in the introduction and the first two chapters, you spent much time on this concept of margin, um, not only because it's in the title of The Water Margin, but also because you suggest that we see margin not as removed or barren, but rather the center. I thought this idea was very interesting. Could you tell us more about it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic and really complicated question. Um, this is something that every reader of the water margin really realizes, right, is that one person's margin is another person's center. And you know, at its heart, the water margin is very much about the relativity of margins, right? The ways in which, uh, you know, at the end of this novel, what was once the literal margins along, you know, the the periphery of the Sui Empire, has become this stronghold where where a new regime is taking shape, uh, and it's a very fun idea for someone in Japan studies to think about because, in a lot of ways the themes of this novel very much resonate with issues that Edo period Japanese writers are wrestling with. Right. Uh, You know, they're standing in the literal margins from the clearly labeled central fluorescence or central kingdom. And a lot of, you know, this, this novel is very much tied in with Japanese reflection on this relationship between center and periphery. Um, You know, and this is again something that is limited not only to the Edo period, but very much continues into the Meiji as well, where even somebody like uh, um, uh, you know Nobu refers to his dwelling places, uh, Mount Liangshan and Tsukiji. Right, Tsukiji no Um, There's this very you know this this very attractive element to this figure of the outlaw. And in a lot of ways, the water margin is this very optimistic novel in terms of this implication that margins can become centers and centers can become margins. So in terms of writing about this, there's the very attractive point of entry for this larger discussion of, you know, as I said earlier, Japanese discussions of the relationship between centers and peripheries. Um, you know, again, in the Meiji period, the formation of Chinese literary studies is another example where this previously marginalized genre of you know, fiction and drama are you know, traditionally Not nearly as prestigious as dramas like classical poetry or things like that. Um, But you see this reversal in the Meiji, where again, this very, this previously marginalized genre is suddenly being held up as the central, the most canonical, the most expressive or legitimate mode of literary expression. So, you know, throughout this 300 year story, there are all these moments where there's this interrogation of centers and margins that you know, again, very effectively uh, echoes the themes of the novel itself.
1: That's really fascinating um, what you said about someone's margin can become someone else's center. Um, So uh, uh, I want to connect this with our next question, which is how to read the water margin. Um, While this novel is originally a Chinese one, Um, There were many adaptations, as you mentioned, by Japanese authors throughout the 18th to 20th centuries. And what your book suggests really is to read the water margin as a work of Japanese rather than a Chinese one in this context to shift the perspective. So um, could you talk about what it means to read a Chinese novel as Japanese literature and why should we do so?
2: Absolutely. So in terms of that, I was very inspired by this quotation I encountered fairly early on into the process of writing. Um, I was I actually began by writing about the Meiji period material. and in the process of uh, kind of digging around the archives at the National Diet Library in Tokyo, I came across this uh, multi-volume compendium of Chinese literature, uh, the Shinabungaku Taiko, which is published, I believe, around, like around 1902 or so. Um, and it included all sorts of different stuff. There were classical poets, there were prose writers, there were works of fiction, lots of different things in there. But what really interested me was the preface to this work, um, and in the preface, the editor of of of, of the collection. Um, had this really interesting line where he told the reader to think of Chinese literature both as a foreign literature, uh, gai kokunobungaku, he told us you know Chinese literature is a foreign literature like Russian, French, English etc. but then two lines later he referred to Chinese literature as the second national literature of Japan, Daini ni kokobungaku and this is of course when the phrase kokobungaku is 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 really taking shape in in the Meiji period academy. um and i thought that was such an interesting maneuver you know to encourage the readers in one breath to just, you know think of chinese literature as the literature of a foreign nat- of a foreign nation but then in the same sentence describe chinese literature as the second national literature of japan um, and that really got to me to thinking, you know, what if we took that claim seriously? you know not 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 in the, you know the imperialistic way that the editor intended. I want to be clear about that. but you know, thinking about works of Chinese literature as integral catalysts for, you know, the formation, you know the the sort of uh, you know, Congealing of the Japanese literary canon, so um, that's what I meant by this idea of you know thinking about thinking about the Water Margin as a work of Japanese literature. I thinking about this work not only as a source text, not only as a source of inspiration for translations and adaptations and things like that, but again as a real catalyst for new ways of thinking about what literature is and new ways of thinking about how you know certain concepts of what Chinese literature and Japanese literature are first took shape.
1: That's fascinating. And that's actually one of my favorite things about your book is that how it blurs the the boundary between um, our current um, disciplinary separation between Chinese studies and Japanese studies. Um, Could you talk about what you see as some of the biggest problems with this blurred boundary between the two? And what are some difficulties in do interdisciplinary studies of Chinese and Japanese studies because your books seem to be a, a combination of both Chinese and Japanese studies. It can easily be categorized in either of our channels. Um, but what are some issues you have encountered or you have observed in such interdisciplinary studies?
2: Sure, that, that's a wonderful question. Um, you know, it's 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 a cliche, but like all cliches, absolutely true. Uh, you know that your book, your dissertation, has a very autobiographical dimension. You know, in sort of a more uh, meta sense, I guess, I do see my book as kind of a meditation on the relationship between my two home disciplines, which are early modern Japanese literary studies and also late imperial Chinese literary studies. I I, I like to think that I contribute to both, um, and I in many ways I feel kind of Reluctant to identify wholly with either field. You know, my position here at ASU is in pre-modern Japanese literary studies, uh, but I work with Chinese language materials as much as I do with Japanese. You know, I write about the afterlives of works of Chinese literature. In a lot of ways, I'm kind of reluctant to to fully identify with with either half of this dyad. Um you know these are two disciplines that should go together very well right but in for some you know for a variety of historical reasons are very separated in the academy right in terms of uh you know job ads tenure lines disciplinary disciplinary affiliations uh there is this division between you know chinese and japanese literature and i think in a lot of ways my book was an exploration of why that is where did the you know the 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 current uh, institutional configuration first come from, and you know my argument in the book is that it very much is rooted in the Meiji period, which is this moment where, for the first time, uh, you know this rigid distinction between. Japanese and Chinese literature first emerges. And with that, the idea that there's something sort of qualitatively different about these two literary traditions. Um, In some ways, this kind of harkens back to your early question. But, you know, when I talk about thinking of the water margin as a work of Japanese literature, um... A question I kind of like to play with was was the inverse of that. When did this work first become a work of Chinese literature, right? When did the water margin first become a work of Chinese literature, you know? Certainly during the Edo period, people are aware that this is written in a different style from, you know, Japanese works of fiction and drama. It's obviously written in different language. And we know that because people have so much trouble learning vernacular Chinese, but I'm reluctant to say that, you know, somebody like Kyokote Bakken or Seda Tanso or Santo Kyoden thought of the water margin as a work of Chinese literature. In the same way that people were, you know, 50 years later, with the emergence of the modern university system, uh, with the development of Bungaku as an a- as an academic discipline, there's this entirely new kind of interpret apparatus uh, in terms of approaching these texts. And for the first time, um, you know, works like the Water Margin or you know Journey to the West or all these other works, um, it's being argued that. Not only are these different in terms of language or in terms of you know place of origin, but there's some kind of reflection of a putative national character that's to be found in these works as well. And so, you know, when I talk about in my in the title of my book, the discovery or the invention of Chinese literature, that's what I'm talking about. This moment, which again, in my mind, is in the in the in the late Meiji period, where. Um, these works are first kind of assembled into this epistemological framework of Chinese literature. And in many ways, I think that that, Distinction, these divisions, these frameworks—you know—very much impact or impact the modern academic configuration as well in a lot of ways. And this is something that's been, you know, argued with tremendous sophistication by, you know, people like Haroshi Rane or Kawai Koso, Tomi Suzuki. Um, we are, in many ways, you know, the heirs to Meiji period taxonomies or ways of thinking about literature. So, um, my work in many ways was trying to figure out why there is this distinction between these two disciplines, where you know there's so much clear connection and points of contact.
1: Not that you mention um, national character, um, and I understand this is a, a very important part of your book. Um, how would you describe the water margins function or its status in Japan's national literature character?
2: Mm-hmm. So this is you know kind of going back to the points we discussed a little bit earlier, the point that gets made over and over and over and over again about the water margin, it's that it's such a weird outlier, uh, you know, in terms of topic, in terms of subject, in terms of, you know, moral orientation. Uh, the argument gets made over and over and over again that there's just nothing like this. And, you know, <clears throat> when we get into the Meiji period, you begin to see the argument that... This is what is so quintessentially Chinese about it. A Japanese author it's argued could never have written a work, you know, as morally problematic as the water margin. Um, and this is something that's argued by everybody from Yamaji Aizan to Akutagawa Ryunosuke. I, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, Akutagawa's travel where he goes to China in 1921, and there's this amazing moment where he's standing on the shores of West Lake, and he has this epiphany about the water margin. He he's imagining that he's, uh, you know, there in the watery marshes. And he has this long section on sort of the impossibility of a Japanese edition of this novel. You know, like, for, for him, what characterizes Japanese rewritings of this novel <clears throat> is that attempt to sort of clean it up, like de Baken or Santo Kyoden. And for him, there's this kind of, you know, terrifying but attractively so instability and dynamism apparent in this work that he and a number of his peers also identify as something sort of quintessentially Chinese. And you know, when they're making these divisions between Japanese and literary Chinese traditions, this is one of the things they highlight is this sort of, again, um, kind of terrifyingly, attractively dynamic quality of this work. Um, By this point, of course, I mean, the water margin has always already been a part of Japanese culture for, you know, 200 years. And uh, this is in some ways kind of a unique moment. But um, that, you know, for me, that was one sort of entry point into, you know, thinking about, you know, the, the um, how these two traditions were, were reified and constructed.
1: That's fascinating. I'd, I'd, ver- I'd be very interested to find out um, how modern day readers of the water margin think about its status in the, the culture of both Countries or nations, I guess.
2: This was this was honestly the original goal. I was going to go from 1700 up until the present day, um, but uh, it was it was just a little bit too ambitious for for, for one book. So I ended up uh, you know kind of ending things right around 1930 or so. I think Akutagawa was was one of my final authors in the survey. But no, absolutely, I mean you know tremendously fascinating thing to you know continue this up to the present day. Uh, when I had my job interview at ASU, what I most vividly remember is meeting with the undergraduates and finding that they all knew about Shui Hu Juan. They all knew what the water margin was. And I was, you know, flattered and delighted. You know, I, I, I thought they'd all been reading the water margin in their spare time or something. Um, I very quickly realized they'd been playing the video game Suikoden, you know, or, or one of the many, many, many versions of Suikoden um, But I was still delighted by that because, you know, this tradition of engagement with the water margin, this, you know, very creative tradition of, Rewriting adaptation is something that continues into the present day, where now you know we could talk about the global circulation of the water margin as this you know this 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 icon.
1: That's super interesting. I actually didn't know there are um, game versions. Oh, of, there's a lot. Yeah, yeah there are a lot. Of, but I should have. Uh, I should have imagined.
2: No, my my undergraduates all have triple PhDs and suikoden gaku, just because you know they're familiar with these these video games. And again, that's the argument that I was making in the book is that. This is very legitimate, right? This is precisely what 18th century Japanese writers were doing is retelling or rethinking this novel without too much anxiety of how true they were staying to the source text. You know, um, you know, Linda Hutchin, who wrote this this wonderful theory of adaptation, talks about this. Historical skepticism towards adaptation or translation. We tend to treat adaptations as something secondary. Uh, we tend to treat them as something inferior to the original. But if you look at a case study like 18th century Japan, this just isn't the case. There's this, you know, tremendous open-mindedness and flexibility towards the original, uh, to the extent that you know it, it very much brings in the question of you know whether or not people were <laughs> really that interested in the original at all. And you know, to me. These video games, which often have only a very tenuous relationship to the original text, are a great example of that as well. So, um,
1: Wow, this really changes how I, how I view the water margin. Um, well, we've taken a lot of your time here. Um, I wish we had more time, but just let me ask one last question. So throughout this whole process of... From, from a dissertation to eventually writing a book on this topic that you so much love, what are some difficulties you have encountered and um, what are some memorable moments that you think that have impacted how this book came to be?
2: Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Um, one very encouraging thing that I noticed in the process of writing this book is that even in the last five years? You know, the, like um, even you know, since the period of when I finished my dissertation, there's so much more research that you know crosses these boundary lines in terms of language, in terms of geographic area, in terms of genre uh, than there were even even when I wrote my dissertation, which which uh, you know geologically is, is is not really that long ago. You know, uh, eight years or so. Um, you know, there there is of course a really wonderful tradition of sino japanese literary study. You know, people like Joshua Fogel, um, you know, Jonathan Swicker. You the, the, I, when I was writing my dissertation, I was very lucky to have this wonderful corpus of scholarship, uh, both in you know, in English, Chinese, and Japanese, to pull on. And I think that the you know that wave of scholars has in turn very much kind of encouraged and empowered uh, a new generation of scholars. And again, I was amazed in writing my book, just how much new material there was, you know, even, you know, t- to work with even in those, you know, six years or so in the past, uh, you know, when I, when I was, when I was uh, sort of writing version one of this, um, you know, I, I, one of, you know, an absolute must read for anyone or a field is Matthew Fraley's wonderful study of uh, the kanji poet Narasimaru Yuhoku, where, you um, he makes this very sophisticated argument that nowadays we worry about the nationality of texts a lot more than the authors of these texts themselves did. You know, his, his book is using, you know, using the case study of this poet Naoshima Yuhoku as a way of thinking about kind of the international dimensions of Kanshi. Um, And, you know, the introduction, I please, please read the entire book, but in the introduction, especially um, he makes what I sort of saw to be, a very thoughtful argument for doing precisely what a lot of these scholars are doing which is looking at the ways in which these texts cross languages cross genre lines cross international boundaries without worrying so much about kind of you know contemporary political lines again joshua fogel in one of his recent publications has this wonderful line where he describes his research as selecting a topic and then following it where it goes you know regardless of where it goes across political boundaries across languages and I really like that image a lot and thought about it a lot when I was writing my own book, you know, when we worry less about these political divisions or worry about, you know, these, you know, these boundaries between kind of institutional disciplines, you know, just to have that kind of, you know, freedom to pick a topic, you know, follow it wherever I might go in terms of language, in terms of culture, in terms of geographic area, um, you know, to me it was a very inspiring idea and one that I sort of, you know, I, I very much try to think about when I was writing my own book. And it seems that there's a lot of uh, scholars out there who are, you know, Kind of embodying that approach and there's you know it's just like a really exciting time in terms of publications that are looking at multiple languages multiple disciplines multiple geographic areas so um i'm, I'm not sure if that answered your question but it's, it's been a very uh you know kind of exciting encouraging thing for me
1: yes it is inspiring indeed um i hope we see a lot more interdisciplinary studies like this in the future in um not just chinese and japanese studies but maybe east asian studies mm-hmm. in general or even trans, um, trans-regional between East Asia and other um, continents in the world.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I hope so, too.
1: Well, thank you so much, Will, for such a wonderful conversation. Oh, it's
2: my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. This is, this was, this is an honor. Thank you.
1: And thank you, everybody, for joining us in the New Books on Japanese Studies channel. Um, Make sure to check out this great book, The Japanese Discovery of Chinese Fiction, The Water Margin and the Making of a National Canon by William Hedberg. Stay tuned for our next episode. And until then, goodbye.
0: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.